Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. I'm Olga, a product marketing manager at Semaphore. In the latest episode, Darko, the podcast host, welcomes Alan Hollop, software architect and author. Alan shares his idea of no estimates and discusses his views on what software development should look like. I hope you find the conversation insightful, and let's dive in. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I've been doing this for an awfully long time. Um, the, I started out actually building robots. I started out as a hardware engineer long, long ago. We were working on systems that didn't have much support at the time. So in the course of building this robot, I started out by having to build a, C, a compiler because the hardware that we had had no compilers in it. And then I had to build an operating system. And by the time I was done with that, um, I was a programmer instead of a hardware engineer. So <laughs> I've, I've evolved gradually over time. I've done a lot of writing. I wrote for Dr. Dobbs for ages. I've written a bunch of books. I'm on Twitter a lot. So particularly what I'm doing nowadays is agile consulting of one sort or another, either training or coming into companies and helping them get some more agility when they don't have any. Um, a lot of that work has to do with beating down fake agile and putting real agile in its place. One of the things I, I want to talk about, because um, that was the initial thing, how I uh, get to know you and, and your work, is the talk that you did maybe five plus years ago. It's uh, about no estimate. When you have a project-based organization, then all of a sudden budget is tied into project, and then you have to start estimating the projects in order to allocate budget and yada, 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 right? And it's it's kind of, you start with dysfunction from an agile point of view, and it gets you someplace where something like no estimate seems nonsensical because you just can't work in that environment. But the thing is, is that all of those things are not particularly agile ways of working, agile lowercase, right? There's, there's not, there's very little agility there. So the issue with no estimates then is that the more agile you are, the less you need them. And the companies that are complaining about no estimates, about not estimating being somehow ridiculous and not real world, the loudness of their complaints is inversely proportional to the amount of agility in their organization, I think. Uh, particularly the project thing is that the, you know, because when your estimation comes from two, well, actually it comes from one thing, really. People want them because they're scared. It comes out of fear. And the fear comes from having opaque processes. And the whole idea of projects and the whole idea of having estimates at all is because somebody, the person who's spending the money is afraid of losing it. They're afraid that they're going to put, you know, some millions of dollars into some project. And as a CTO, you understand how expensive software development is. It's like insanely expensive. And, and they're afraid they're not going to get any return from that investment. And it's, it's a reasonable fear. So this kind of flip side of talking about no estimates is talking about how do you work in a way where the issue just doesn't come up? If the fear is that you're not going to deliver, if you're working in an agile way and you're delivering every few days, that's sort of people in that kind of environment, people stop asking for estimates because they don't need them anymore. It's that the, the fear goes away because you actually are delivering. So you don't have to be worried about being in a situation where delivery isn't going to happen. And the same with working in terms of projects is that Project focus is never good in my mind, is that it gets you thinking about the wrong things, is that um, you tend to, for one thing, when you have a project, there's an end, right? You have an end state, is you, you have a project that's supposed to accomplish something, some end state. And of course, if we're agile, we don't know the end state when we start. We think we do. <laughs> we, we move in strategic directions, which we think are the correct strategic directions. But as we're working, we're delivering and we're getting feedback and we're modifying what we're doing. And that feedback could very well change the end state entirely. 
And in a project world, people would say, well, the project failed then because we haven't achieved what we set out to achieve. But in the agile world, we're saying, well, so what? You know, what we have achieved is much more useful <laughs> than what we had intended to achieve, right? So that whole project focus is really kind of bad. And you mix that with traditional large corporations and it gets really, really bad because you start having, um, you start tearing teams apart at the end of a project and putting them back together again. There's nothing worse than that. Is that a gelled team that's doing good work? You don't want to tear that apart. But the estimates thing flies into that too, right? Is that you want an estimate so you can budget the project. But if you're not sure that the project is going to do anything useful, then what does that even mean to budget the project, right? Is that the, it makes no sense at all. So again, what I find is the more agile the company is, the less project focus there is. And the, when you have less project focus, you can focus on the product as a whole rather than the individual projects. And that's a, that's a much better place to be. What that means, though, is you have to go about funding. The governance model of a company that's doing this is, is much different. You're funding the teams, not the work, right? You're saying, okay, we're going to pay for a, five teams and we have budgeted a year's worth of five teams. And that's, of course, an easy thing to budget. Again, as you know, as a CTO, it's just salary times a multiplier and you're kind of done. So that takes all the work out of all this budgeting, but it eliminates the need for estimating because we now have these five funded teams. And then the question becomes, so what's valuable enough for them to be working on it? Is where, which, What shall we have these teams working on? And the question changes then from what's the estimate for this work, which, which we've decided to do in advance, to we're not quite sure exactly what we're going to do. We have a strategic direction, and we want to move in that direction because that's where the market is taking us. But we don't know exactly what to do in order to achieve these strategic goals. We'll figure that out as we go along. And we're willing to invest this much money because we expect this return. In other words, you're not, I suppose that's a kind of estimate, but it's not an estimate in the sense that the no estimate trolls are talking about. We're, we're not taking a, specification for a project and then estimating how long it's going to take by analyzing that specification. That's usually what they mean by estimation. Um, this is more an investment strategy. We're saying, okay, we've done market analysis and we think that the return on our investment would be X. We think that we can make this much money in the market and we're willing to spend a certain amount of money on teams in order to find out. So we'll invest a little bit of money to get X teams working on the, in this strategic direction. They'll deliver, right? They're delivering every few days, but maybe after a month or two, they'll have something that we could actually sell. Won't do everything that we want, but it'll do something, right? And then you talk about bootstrapping, there, there we go, right? And then you sell that and maybe that's not enough money to pay for the development yet, but it's revenue at least, it's something. It's countering the expense. And the point is, is that once you start doing that, then you get feedback and then you can make a decision whether it's worth making more investments or not, right? And the, it's all very dynamic is we're going to invest this much for a month to find out whether it's worth investing more for the next three or four months after that. So what, what no estimates is really about is not not estimating. It's about changing the way you work so that you don't need to estimate anymore. I wanted to, I mean, something that you added somewhere towards the end is um, that feedback loop. To the point where in an ideal world, your customer is literally sitting next to you as you're working, right? If you look at extreme programming at XP, there was an on-site customer role. Now, that wasn't actually a customer in XP, though it could be. It was something similar to, but not the same as a Scrum product owner. But the um, but it was still the notion that we have a customer on site. So you're getting feedback by working away and you say, hey, Fred, come over here and take a look at this, right? And that's feedback, right? And so you're getting feedback, ideally, every few minutes as you're working. And then you get to the point where you can release to somebody other than Fred, like at the end of the day, maybe. And then you do that. And that gives you more feedback from a larger group. And then you don't need to release to everybody at once. You can do phased rollouts. So you 
release to a small group and get feedback and make changes and release to a larger group and get feedback and make changes. And it's all, you know, just loop after loop after loop, but it's all dependent on feedback. Absolutely. And that one of the things that people that do scrum badly do wrong is they imagine that all of the feedback comes in once every two weeks in the sprint review. And that's not the way it works at all. It's that scrum is a, is a, it's a review cadence. It is not a delivery cadence. Even if you're doing Scrum, and I'm not a huge Scrum fan, but even if you're doing Scrum, a good Scrum team will be releasing every day or two. The feedback loop is what's driving the process. And anything that we can do to make that feedback loop smaller is a good thing. Something I like to ask is, um, as you have been doing, you know, Agile way before Agile, and maybe I'm in industry close to 15 years, you, you are you're much longer. If you would take, you know, decades last, let's say three, in terms of change in the people, how people work and in terms of like trajectories of the industry, agile, this way of working that seems it's you and I <laughs> for me believing, I'm, I'm sure many of our, our, our listeners also, how would you uh, describe the change that you are seeing in the industry? What's changed over time is that as software has become more and more of a part of the fabric of society, the huge corporations have taken over the development of software. And some of those huge corporations started out small, but became huge. But unfortunately, they adopted the culture and thinking of the huge corporation rather than taking the culture and thinking of the original Agile companies in scaling that up. And I think that's been a huge problem. I, th- I think the reason that Agile has failed to some extent, and Scrum has failed to an even greater extent, is because it's been grabbed by these corporate people who then try and twist it into their own vision of how a company has to work. They say, oh, there's a bunch of cowboys around here. We can't have that. We've got to start putting all these heavy-duty processes in place. And we need governance and all this other craziness that destroys agility. And whether or not one needs to do this to make the market happy is arguable. So you end up with these very large corporations then run by MBAs that know nothing about Agile and are actually kind of hostile to the whole idea. You know, more and more I see people defining success in the industry as like working for a FANG company or something like that. And I don't personally think that's a good way to go. Uh, Most of the big fan companies and companies of that size are not particularly agile. They're not particularly nice places to work. Amazon in particular has a reputation for being something of a sweatshop. Um, And of course, Facebook, now Meta, is a company that is dedicated to the destruction of democracy. That's what their their mission is now. I have a different perspective than many have. Um, If somebody says to me, I can't find an agile company to work for, my response is, well, make one. It's not that hard. Find some piece of software that you would like to have that doesn't exist and build it <laughs> and see if anybody wants to buy it, right? How hard is this? And the, the, it's, you know, people think that it's risky, but it's, you know, working for any company is risky at this point. It's nobody's companies have no allegiance to you as an employee. So, you know, the only thing that's in the way is that people need to save up a little bit of money in order to get started, right? And it's not a fortune. You don't have to mortgage your house, but you've got to have enough to go keep going for like six months or so, so you can spend some time programming and seeing if something is worth building. It's not that hard. So again, my maybe my point of view is naive because of where I live, but I've seen it work so many times that I can't discount it <laughs> as, as, a, as a way of going. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com blog for more information. And happy reading! Something that I uh, 
I would add to this, maybe it will align, well, maybe not ideally, but just in the time frame, which is in, in my, that I know of like 2010s, where the, the years where, you know, GitHub came around and, you know, a lot of these SaaS tools for developers that are, you know, close to me and that, that I see. Actually, the, <laughs> that were the most successful were essentially swallowed by a big corporations. I don't know how things feel and work internally, but just looking at the product and feeling it, you know, you can feel that it's it twisted in some different, you know, shape and form, how, how it operates. Listening to you explaining this, you know, working in a agile, more happy environment versus working it in some environment which has a completely different set of values and norms, you can feel it through the products. If the company actually wants to have agility, and more and more companies that don't have any agility are going to be driven out of business by companies that do. You can get there, right? So you can you can move from where you are to somewhere else. And usually that involves making smaller companies, right? Is that what happens is that a company will spin off a subsidiary that will be dedicated to be to a specific product and then leave them alone to say, okay, you I we're <laughs> we're gonna fund you, <laughs> but treat this as if it's venture funding, as we are not gonna tell you how to do your job. It's just work. Yeah, as long as you have a CEO who's more interested in turf wars and building territory and building a kingdom, that's not going to happen. But if you have a CEO that's interested in the actual good of the company, who wants the company to be able to accommodate market changes quickly and that kind of stuff, uh, you can pull it off. It's possible. I think you're right that ultimately it comes down to culture, though. And certainly upper management is... That's their job <laughs> more than anything else is to establish a culture in the organization. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, upper management in, in any company, no matter what size, has two jobs. One is to establish culture and the other is to come up with a strategy, with the corporate strategy for moving forward. Then I guess the third job is to then communicate that to everybody else. That's the core of what they're doing. Everything else is kind of secondary because everything else is just bookkeeping. As long as you have a, C, a bunch of C-levels that understand that, and are willing to say, you know, this is my job and your job is to take this strategy and make it real. And we trust you to do that. You can have an agile, you can have an agile company. Leadership isn't ordering people around. It's not like, you know, putting a nose ring on a pig and dragging it around by a rope. It's rather, I'm going to set up a situation where you can be successful and I'm going to give you the help that you need to be successful. And if you're successful, then I'm successful. That's the way agile leadership at least looks like. It's not management. There's a difference between leadership and management. Of course, in an agile world, the teams manage themselves. So there's no need for managers. This is what you need is, again, the leadership is saying, here's our strategic direction. Like the number of recent guests on this podcast started their careers maybe in like early 90s or so. So one thing that I recognize that they had their first workplace was a correct, was a good workplace, you know, where they started their careers. What are your thoughts on that? How much of, um, you know? If the first experiences you have working professionally as a programmer or for an agile company, you will not want to do anything else. If you start working in a large, agile, hostile corporate environment, you will also start thinking that that's the only way that you can work. The way that you start tends to influence the way that you continue. You develop patterns of thinking and you have a model of how a company should work in your head based on how you've seen companies actually work and you tend to continue along that path. It's hard to change direction once you get started. The problem is is that people like to blame management, but in fact it's often not management that's the problem. It's the people who are doing the work that can't imagine <laughs> any other way of working than what they're doing now. 
Yeah, but if I would try to connect a few dots throughout the, the conversation together, uh, one of the things that you said, you allocate the budget for a year and you find fi- fund five teams and you let them go and do, and you trust them, they will do a good work. Right, but you're, they're not, you're not just letting them loose. This isn't the Wild West, as you're saying, and here is our strategy and it's your job to realize that strategy. Yeah, of course. But that's maybe connecting to, to, to this question is um, to work in such a way, you have to have a trust in that team. And to me, that trust is kind of on the, on the other end of spectrum of like estimates. Trust comes in two ways, right? One way that you can develop trust is you can say this team always hits their estimates. But what does that mean? Right, is that the, in order for a team to hit the estimates, they have to pad the estimates out by a factor of three or four or five, right? So the problem is the trust is then misplaced because no team in that environment is going to deliver early. Because if you deliver early, thereafter, every time you make an estimate, somebody's going to cut it in half. So you never deliver early. So you pad the estimates because you're trying to cover your ass and make sure that you can deliver something and then you then you will not deliver early. So this is Parkinson's law, right? Work expands to fill all available time. Most of that time, though, is spent doing unnecessary things that are there just to pad out the work so that you can come up to the, the padded estimate that you came up with. So, But that for a manager who's not thinking along those lines, they'll say, I trust this team because they always hit their estimates. So the other way to develop trust is to deliver consistently and predictably. But if you're not delivering frequently, you get back into that realm of fear that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Because then they're saying, I'm afraid that they're never going to deliver. It's been a month. It's been two months. They still haven't delivered anything. And the longer time elapses, the more afraid you are and the lower the trust levels are. So the way to develop trust, from my point of view, is to deliver frequently every day or two. And everything you deliver has to provide some obvious improvement over the thing that you had two days ago. Can you give us some insight into, you know, how people can, you know, learn more from you about your work? And so- Well, certainly follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alan Holub. I have a mailing list on my website. If you go to holub.com slash subscribe, there's a mailing list there. I, I, a lot of my business is teaching classes in-house for companies, but I do public classes occasionally. In fact, I'm about to schedule a public class on, on user story development. Um, by the time this goes live, the class probably will have already happened, but the, I do this periodically. So if you're on my mailing list, you'll get notifications when I do classes. So those are the two main things. I, I'm, you know, I'm working on a couple books. So I, these are books that I propose to O'Reilly and they wouldn't have anything to do with them. So, <laughs> so I, well, the, the book that I'm working on now is called, is called hashtag no. And I gave that to O'Reilly and they said, we can't possibly publish a book with that title. It's too negative. And the, <laughs> so I'm thinking like no estimates, no projects, no this, no that. Is that this is a book about fake agile and how to recover from it. About, <laughs> In other words, what are all of the things that we are doing that are not helping us and what can we do instead? And so, that, so I'm working on that now. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to do a book called Hashtag Yes, which is a <laughs> which is going to work from a set of, I, I came up with this set of 30-some heuristics for effective software development. I can give you the URL for that at some point. You can publish it, but it's holub.com slash H-E-U for heuristics. I think that'll make a good book too. So that's, that's taking it more from a positive point of view is here are the things that you should do from day one. Here are the things that actually increase your agility. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with your books. And I hope that you'll find the publisher. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're welcome. My pleasure. 
Wow, I learned a lot about why companies should get rid of estimates. While Agile is the way to go, it does not mix well with other practices, just as widespread in the industry, chiefly estimates and project-based development. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore & Cut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned!